pandemic, social unrest, the state, and the White House. You are listening to the John DePietro Show. It's John DePietro on AM 1380, 99.9 FM. Folks, you can always listen online at the website, DePietro.com. It is Thursday, and finally, they found Governor McKee, and he's finally going to have a press briefing giving the latest on this COVID surge that has overtaken Rhode Island. Folks, I, I have to admit, I cannot believe the governor has been missing in action. When things were going very well and all the numbers were going down and so forth, the governor was widely seen. The governor was uh, readily available. All of a sudden, as many of you know, since it's been a full week now, since uh, the end of last week and then this entire week, the state has faced an incredible surge of COVID and lack of testing places and lack of place to get tests and the test results are taking a long time and the hospitals are starting to fill up and Governor McKee's been missing in action. He's still turning this into a show. He's taking the show on the road. He's going to be doing a briefing coming up at two o'clock with Dr. Scott, who uh, I wouldn't hold my breath on being impressive. I, I would say uh, Governor McKee, I mean, th this is the time to be engaged. This is the time getting information out to the public. People have been warning them. The lieutenant governor uh, did test positive, so she's not going to be there. She's in quarantine. But uh, Governor McKee really needs to step it up. Uh, it's, it's really shocking that this amount of time has gone by. He's been silent this whole week. His last public comments, other than sending tweets, you know, wishing people happy Kwans and so forth. But uh, Governor McKee, his last public comments were last Tuesday, the Tuesday before Christmas. Now, here we are, you know, it's the day before New Year's Eve, and he's finally emerging from wherever he's been. Now, I just, for the life of me, don't understand why he has not had some kind of a public briefing. And the governor could have even, you know, done some kind of a remote press briefing or something earlier in the week. Uh, people want more information. People need more information. People, uh, the, the, all these long lines that exist of people trying to get tested. Plus, you have the schools, people, you know, wondering, are they sending the kids back in person for school next week? So this is a big day, but hopefully this is not going to be another week before we see the governor signing up. I mean, this is the time to be visible. All of these, you know, uh, press conferences where we're giving away money to this one, we're giving away money to this one, we're giving out scratch tickets. You know, all that's all, in, you know, that's fine. But this is the time the state actually needs leadership. It's certainly not coming from the Department of Health, that's for sure. So it's Thursday, and hopefully Governor McKee will step up. Although I'm not I don't know. I don't know what he's going to say, but he certainly needs to be more visible than he has been. So that's going to be coming up later. Again, you're listening to The John DePietro Show. Heating season is here. Let J.K.L. Engineering design and install a natural gas high-efficiency carrier infinity system. Energy-efficient, quiet, and more affordable than you think. If you're saying no gas, guess what? No problem. Let JKL Engineering design and install a high-efficiency heat pump system, including ductless splits. Heats in the winter, cools in the summer. These units are so efficient, it can reduce your oil bill by as much as 90%. They have the highest rebates in the market, and they also do new installation replacement of high-efficiency gas boilers. JKL Carry a factory authorized dealer, licensed, by the way, in both Rhode Island and Massachusetts for 55 years. J.K.L.'s reputation, second to none. Call J.K.L. Engineering today. Replacements, whether it's for a system replacement, oil to gas, or for a heat pump. Estimates are free. Financing is available, both residential and commercial. Call J.K.L. 401-351-7600. They do it right. They do it right the first time. This winter, you can depend on J.K.L. Engineering. 401-351-7600, licensed in both Rhode Island and Massachusetts. You're listening to the John DePietro Show weekdays. We start at 11. We go until 2. It's AM 1380, 99.9 FM. You can always listen online at the website, dipietro.com. It's time for our legal segment. Joining us right now, one of Rhode Island's top attorneys, it is attorney Tim Dodd. And Tim, if it's okay, I'd like to start off with uh, the much-anticipated verdict in this. People know her of being in with uh, Jeffrey Epstein. But Ghislaine Maxwell has uh, finally had her day in court, and the jury has finally rendered a verdict. Yes. Um, 
you never know what a jury is going to do. I mean, you've got talking heads out there saying, oh, it's going to be a mistrial. Oh, the, uh, the alleged victims weren't credible. Um, and you can go back and forth and talk yourself into, oh, she's going to get acquitted or, oh, she's going to be found guilty or, oh, this is a definite mistrial. You never really know what a jury is going to do until they come back and, and give their verdict and state what it is. Here, uh, Maxwell was found guilty of the f five of the six uh, charges against her for, you know, conspiracy, for transporting minors over state lines for um, sexual purposes. Um, the jury clearly bought the testimony of the um, victims and found their um, testimony to be credible. Um, and the one witness that was put up by the defense saying that she had also been in uh, the orbit of Maxwell and Epstein and that nothing bad had ever happened to her just wasn't enough to offset what the um, other witnesses had all said. She's looking, Maxwell is, John, at a lengthy criminal sentence. Um, she could get... 15, 18, 22 years easily. Wow. And oh, there boy. could be an upward departure based upon the really reprehensible nature of what she did to um, groom these young women, as they call it, grooming them to be comfortable with, um, at an at age of 14 or 15, having sexual relations with uh Epstein and or Maxwell, as, mm. as the case might be. Um, so she is looking at spending presumably potentially the rest of her life or close to it in jail. Now, the specter now is, does she have any cards to play? Does she have anything to offer the prosecutors uh, naming names, so to speak, pointing right. to other people who were participants. Um, you know, she. let's assume she has some information and some dirt to give to the, um, the feds. Well, she may have held it back thinking, well, if I'm found not guilty, I'm not going to use this stuff. And if I'm found not guilty, maybe I'll go write myself a book. Now that she has um, been convicted... Um, it seems to me if she has any material to offer in exchange for a reduced sentence, um, her biggest problem is that, um, you know, they might find her in a jail cell having committed suicide like, um, you know, we Jeffrey found Epstein. with Mr. Epstein. Yeah. So if she's got cards to play, she better play them promptly. Or, you know, she may never get that chance. I wouldn't want to be her inside um, prison walls like Epstein was and where he, you know, was found dead under extraordinarily curious circumstances. Um, the media has, you know, ruled it to be a suicide, but I think there's a lot of questions about the, the means and the method of how that guy came um, to pass away could could maxwell have taken the stand much like um, kyle rittenhouse did and much like um, elizabeth holmes did i don't think she had that same ability based upon apparently the mountain of um, information and other witnesses that the government didn't even use mm. um, against her so it's hard for her to be acquitted without taking the stand because a jury would like to probably hear from her saying, no, you got it all wrong. I didn't do these things. This is what really happened. But um, I think the conventional wisdom is she would have been crushed on cross-examination. Yeah. And she was just in a box. She couldn't testify. And it's hard without her testimony to convince a jury that she didn't do all these heinous things that she's been accused of. Right. Uh, folks, again, we're speaking with our legal expert, Attorney Tim Dodd. Tim, while we're talking about big trials, uh, we're still waiting, I believe, on the jury with Elizabeth Holmes. This one is really interesting, and I've thought from the beginning, I don't know if she'll be acquitted, um, maybe a hung jury. I think the, 
the jury here seems, and again, we're playing the, the jury game. What are they thinking? What are they doing? One of the most interesting things they did here is they asked the judge about a week ago if they could have a f- copy of the 39 pages of very complex jury instructions and asked, Judge, can we each get a copy and can we take it home so we can study it? Hmm. And the judge said, no, your your deliberations are in the jury room, not to be right. conducted outside of the, the jury room. You can't do it at home. You can't do it elsewhere. But that tells me that the jury is um, confused or having a difficult time applying the jury instructions to the fraud charges against Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah. So what else has the jury asked for? They've asked for um, some of the um, testimony of Elizabeth Holmes and some of the recordings of um, discussion she had when she was promoting Theranos to different investors. The real question is, did she lie to investors? Did she know that she was lying and misrepresenting the um, effectiveness and the applicability of the Theranos uh, blood testing system? Or was she puffing? Was she promoting? Was she telling investors what she hoped the product would do, what they were shooting for, what they were developing? Um, If she outright lied, knowing that... Theranos had a product that didn't work. That's one thing. And, you know, words, you have to parse them carefully. And what she was saying when she was speaking to investors and her board of directors, et cetera, um, she took the chance to get up on the stand and testify. And apparently she was very precise and very charming and very smiley when she was being asked questions by her counsel. She got a little bit um, tense and largely forgetful on certain things when the um, prosecutors were cross-examining her. But I think she's a pretty persuasive person. She's attractive. She's well-spoken. She's poised. She's very confident in her ability to sell herself. She sold Theranos billions of dollars worth of investment money largely on her ability to persuade um not a lot of people like that out there steve jobs would have been one she's one there's others who can get out there and really sell i think if she didn't testify she would have been doomed i think having taken the stand which is a huge gamble i think it may have worked in her favor the other problem with this case john it's Thursday. The jury was supposed to deliberate on Thursday and then take New Year's Eve and come back next week. Um, The judge gave the jury today off Thursday. They're not going to convene on Friday. They're not going to convene on Monday. They're going to come back on Tuesday, I understand. So what can happen? This jury is not sequestered. They could be influenced by outside forces. Let's assume one or two or more of the jurors get COVID. Oh, now Mm. next week, oh, I'm sick. I've got COVID. I can't come in. Does that create a mistrial? Yeah. The judge is giving this jury a chance to sort of get out of control. The the other interesting aspect of this case is um, apparently the lawyers for Holmes and for the prosecutor late Wednesday in chambers with the judge. Speculation is they may be talking about a plea deal. Who knows? We really don't know what was being discussed, but a late Wednesday conference results in no jury deliberation on Thursday. What does it mean? Well, we're all reading tea leaves. No one's talking. The um, in-camera, in-chambers discussion between counsel and the judge that transcript is sealed for the moment, so we don't know what they were talking about. But I see a great possibility for a mistrial if Holmes doesn't lose her nerve and try to cut some deal and take a plea on maybe one of the counts and you know get a mild uh, sentence. Um, she's going to maybe have a cooperation agreement if she went that route to testify against... Um, 
Sonny, I can't think of his last name, Ben Wally or whatever his last name is, who's going to trial um, early in 2022. So it's a real mystery, but I don't think she's going to get convicted by a jury. She might lose her nerve and cut a deal, but Mm. I don't see her getting convicted. Yeah. Folks, quick break. A lot more attorney Tim Dodd right here on the John DePietro Show. Well, remember, stop in and see Michael at The CBD Store, The CBD Store, and they're located 1845 Post Road in Warwick. They're right off of 95, right across from Airport Plaza. Stop in and see Michael, so knowledgeable, at The CBD Store. What can they help you with? Well, they can help everyone, especially whether or not you're maybe you're fighting stress or anxiety this time of year, all time of year, everything we're going through. Maybe you have trouble sleeping or you're dealing with pain, even seizure, stop it and see Michael, and he'll help you all natural at The CBD Store, 1845 Post Road in Warwick. You can also find them on Facebook. What they're also amazing about is they even have it for your pet. That's right. We started to give it to our dog, who's a little bit older, and it really helps his hind legs jump up onto the, the deck. Folks, stop it and see them, The CBD Store, and mention the John DePietro Show, 25% off your first purchase. Stop and see them, The CBD Store in Warwick. Look for them on Facebook, 1845 Post Road in Warwick. We're speaking with our legal expert, Rhode Island attorney, Tim Dodd. Tim, I'd like you to touch on uh, Governor McKee's Senate executive order basically inoculates the hospitals from any type of uh, legal action during COVID. That certainly... I, I received a number of emails from people saying, how is that legal? How can he do that? And what's the purpose of doing that? I find what the governor has done to be extremely troubling. Um, it may be within his constitutional authority to do this, but it's um, really, for so many reasons, I think a bad idea. Um, we're, we're learning, and it really wasn't well known that um, – Governor Raimondo had um, implemented a similar order, which went from, I think, April of 2020 until, um, excuse me, it went at least for over a year. I forget the dates, but it ended like in August of this year under uh, Governor McKee's watch. It went from like August of 2020 until April of 2020 till August of 2021 giving hospitals this exemption. So what's happened? The governor has got this mandate that get vaccinated or get fired. Hospitals have said, yeah, we're going to follow that edict from the governor. You get vaccinated or you're going to be terminated to hospital staff. And a lot of hospital staff have said, you know what? I'm out of here. I don't need this. You're right. not going to compel me to get vaccinated. Yep. Others who work for the hospital who did get vaxxed under protest are burned out. They, they did heroic work before we had vaccines. Yep. And some of them are saying, you know, what? hell with this. You know, yeah. what am I doing? Right. They can leave the hospital, go work for one of these, you know, uh, let's use nurses as an example. Sure. There's, there's companies that will hire nurses and they will go work on a per diem basis. They can make right. more money than yeah. if they were working as a direct employee of the hospital. Sure. Yep. So the governor's order and the hospital's compliance has led to a great reduction in staffing. So now that they've caused the staffing reduction, the hospitals are saying, we, we followed these rules. We fired all these people. Others have quit. Hey, now we need relief. We need relief so that if there's medical negligence allegedly occurring because of staffing shortage, shortages, we want to be immune. And the governor's now um, enacted or continued what um, Governor Raimondo had done. I think under the governor's powers statutorily provided in a pandemic, things like saying, yes, you've got to get wear a mask or there's got to be remote learning. We've got to close schools. That's all within the governor's purview. Um, 
but to attempt to shield hospitals from liability for negligence based on staffing shortages, I think is an overreach. I'm not sure it's been challenged legally, but it seems to me to be an overreach. And the problem has been created by these executive orders and by these hospitals complying with the executive order. And now that they've complied and made a mess of everything, now they're saying we need relief. So it's not the same thing. But remember the case a few years ago when um, James Wood's brother at a medical malpractice case, largely because they left them in a hallway, untreated for hours and hours and hours. Let's assume now there's a staffing shortage and somebody is left in the hallway for hours and hours and hours and they, they die. The hospital's going to say, Hey, that's a staffing shortage. We couldn't get to that person. We're, mm-hmm. we're immune from liability. Yep. That doesn't seem right. And hospitals right now are saying, Oh, we're losing staff. We're losing staff. The governor, instead of giving hospitals immunity, could call in the national guard. Hospitals could spend more money and hire more um, staff from these staffing organizations that pay more money, but there is an ability to replace workers who have um, either left and fired or are out sick. There's other ways to approach this versus giving hospitals immunity from liability if negligence occurs because of staffing problems, it's like the governor and the hospitals have created the problem and now they yeah. want to be given relief. It, it seems totally wrong to me. Hmm. Folks, again, we're speaking with our legal expert, Tim Dodd. And Tim, staying locally uh, for a moment, uh, Mayor Lorza has announced that uh, very soon into the new year, if you're a Providence City employee, if you have not been vaccinated and they come right out and say that you're going to be fired, Providence police are already upset about it. A lot of city workers are upset saying, no, wait a minute, you know, the state workers, it was basically, you know, voluntary whether or not if you want to get it and they got $3,000 bonuses and you didn't even have to get it. You could get exemptions and so forth. Um, It sounds like the police and the city workers are ready to challenge Mayor Alorza and they're just wondering how can he mandate that? And yet the state workers did not have to go through this. And I think that's exactly the point. I think that if the um, police union or the firefighters union or any of the other organized, you know, subsets in the city of Providence of employees challenges in court, um, I think they've got a reasonable argument and a reasonable basis to challenge this. Right now, we've got this um, variant that's out there. And we hear reports, and we've talked about this before, John, we hear reports about the number of deaths, the number of people in the hospital, the number of infections. But we really don't get into the details of all these statistics that are thrown at the public. Um, You know, how many people have, you know, expired because of this, unfortunately, who had other comorbidities? What's the age group that's getting ill? Um, How many people between, you know, 10 and 20 years old are are having problems? How many people who are obese? How many people who with COPD? Um, There's no extrapolation of who's getting sick and what's their underlying medical problems. Everyone's all lumped together and said, oh, look at this. The numbers are up. We've got to do all these emergency things. Um, it may be justified, it may not, but I think the public is getting very jaded when they this hear these statistics without any support for what those statistics are supposed to reveal. Who's getting sick? Um, what's the underlying conditions? And it seems to me an overreach by uh, Mayor Alorza to say, "Get show us that you're vaxxed or you're going to be terminated. Uh, I'm not sure it would be upheld in court, but um, it seems like another overreach by the government to compel compliance or risk termination. Yeah. I, I don't know that the science supports, you know, such a harsh edict by this administration in Providence. Mm. Folks, another quick break, a lot more attorney Tim Dodd right here 
on the John DePietro Show. Propane Plus. For heating and cooling, call Propane Plus today in Massachusetts, 508-252-3359. In Rhode Island, Propane Plus number 401-885-4209. It's the Johnson family. It's Propane Plus, the leading full-service provider of propane to Rhode Island and southeastern Mass. Not only can they install your tank and schedule propane deliveries, but they can service your entire heating, cooling system, and install any propane or natural gas appliances. Locations in East Greenwich and also in Rehoboth. Remember, Propane Plus is energy for everyone. It's affordable, sustainable, equitable, good for the environment, and also now it's renewable. Online at propaneplus.com. Propane Plus, heating and cooling. In Massachusetts, call the Rehoboth office, 508-252-3359. And in Rhode Island, 401 401- 885-4209. You can depend on Propane Plus. We're speaking with our legal expert, Attorney Tim Dodd. Tim, this uh, a legal battle going on between Project Veritas and the New York Times. New York Times seems uh, very upset by the judge's ruling. It's a little bit complicated, but it's a really interesting story because of the work that uh, Project Veritas does and then obviously the reputation of the New York Times. Well, yeah, Project Veritas is uh, right out front. Um, it's run by a guy named James O'Keefe, and he's been um, a thorn in the side of mainstream political thought. Um, he'll send people in to campaigns or get people surreptitiously recorded who um, will reveal the truth about things, and then Project Veritas runs it on their website and, you know, things like voter fraud and things with COVID. um, It really uncovers a lot of fraudulent conduct or, you know, unethical conduct that's going out in certain governmental um, um, spheres. So he is suing the New York Times, um, saying that he's been slandered and maligned by the New York Times. Um, There's a battle going on about certain information and documentation that the New York Times has received, and it gets very thorny. Um, There's one thing going on out there, which is a little off this specifically, but Project Veritas, as you recall, Um, allegedly has diaries from um, Joe Biden's daughter. Um, How they got that, who knows? If you'll recall, the FBI um, did a raid on James O'Keefe's home looking to get information regarding this um, diary, which apparently this daughter, who knew that that, uh, Joe Biden even had a daughter, and the daughter has... Uh, in her diary, if this is an accurate, legitimate diary, a lot of creepy information about about her interactions with Joe Biden. Yeah, uh, the things that you see on the news about how he interacts with women um, is nothing compared to what's allegedly in this diary. Yeah. So, w- since when does the FBI go, you know, chasing people down for a, an allegedly stolen diary? Now. In the process of getting information and raiding um, O'Keefe's home, they've got information on him, and now the New York Times is using it. And there's an argument that what the New York Times has has been illegally obtained, um, and the courts are wrestling with that. There's been one court saying it's okay. There's another saying let's hold on to all this information. The problem is to the extent the New York Times is possession in possession of material which might have been uh, obtained, let's assume somebody stole information from O'Keefe and turns it over to the New York Times. New York Times says, hey, we didn't steal it, but it came into our possession. We want to run it. Yeah. Um, I think ultimately they will be able to do so. The, the, the standard for all this was established with the Pentagon Papers. If you recall, the information was stolen, provided to the New York Times, and the New York Times ran it, and numerous court decisions said, well, 
hey, if the New York Times didn't steal it, no problem. If it comes into their possession, there's nothing stopping them from reprinting information that came to them, although stolen from another source, they can run it in their paper. Yep. So it's a, it's a tug of war between the interest of New York Times and James O'Keefe of Veritas. I think that the New York Times is going to be able to use all this material, and I don't think O'Keefe is going to be able to stop it. But at the same time, if that stuff is put out there in the paper, I think that will enhance O'Keefe's claim for um, libel and for slander. It's, it's a rather complicated situation, but um, I think it ultimately will wind up in the Supreme Court. Yeah. Folks, we're speaking with our legal expert, Tim Dodd. Tim, I also just want you to touch on, boy, we see all of this, uh, these uh, bad behavior in the, it used to be the friendly skies, but people acting up on airlines and fights and fighting with other passengers over masks and fighting with the staff. But what people are finding out is that the charges that 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 one an individual faces this is not just a routine you know you someone's in a bar and there's some pushing back and forth these are far serious seemingly far more serious charges if you cause an altercation while uh, that some of these people are finding out as when a flight is in progress yes if if the things that we're seeing on various television broadcasts everyone's got their uh, smartphones and videos, all these altercations. Um, let's take, for instance, the woman who was apparently intoxicated and was yelling at a man who had his mask down because yeah. he was having his something to eat. And she's screaming at him and he's, you know, pushing back against what she's saying. And she spits at him and she slaps him in the face. Um, and apparently she was drunk or allegedly yeah. drunk. Um, if fully prosecuted, she's looking at a potential for five years in federal prison. Will that ever happen to her? Who knows? But I think that um, there's so much um, bad behavior going on in airlines. I think these cases need to get prosecuted. So there can be a message getting out to the public saying, hey, if you engage in this type of bad behavior, you will be prosecuted. And these are jail cases. Um, it, this seems to me, John, to be a, a bit of a sign of the times. We see people running into stores, smashing and grabbing with no yeah. consequence. We see people, you know, burning police vehicles. We see all sorts of public unrest, which goes unprosecuted. Um, people are irritable because of this whole COVID situation. Everyone's sick of it. Everyone's on edge. But to allow this type of behavior to go on in airlines, I think people assume, hey, everyone's getting out. Everyone else is getting away with stuff. Um, I'm going to get away with this, too. I can make a scene. Um, I can vent my spleen up here, you know, in the friendly skies and nothing's going to happen to me. I think, you know, federal prosecutors have to do something more to um, make examples of those who are doing this and let the public know that this is not going to go unpunished and unchallenged. It's a, it creates a really dangerous situation for everyone on that plane. It's, it's, um, it can't be allowed to continue. Yeah. You know, uh, I was speaking with a pilot that said what a lot of people don't understand is that whatever number of drinks you have, once the plane hits a certain altitude up in the, up into the sky, the, the number of drinks you have double. So if you're at the airport lounge tossing back a few, you know, you have two drinks before you take off. When that flight, when you hit that 35,000 feet, that's the equivalent of four drinks, let alone if you've had a drink on board. So he seemed to think that a lot of these people don't even realize how intoxicated they're getting. Tim Dodd, were you surprised at the um, result of, uh, boy, there was a lot of fanfare with potential charges, legal consequences of former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. But now it seems like he's once again going to skate. Um, there, there's a, one of the national shows that uh, I can't think of who does it, but the, the tagline is always be a Democrat. And I think mm. there's no truer words ever spoken than for um, um, Andrew Cuomo. They got him on a number of these um, 
situations where he has been abusive towards women. Um, one of the um, prosecutors in, I think it's Westchester County, said, while there's evidence to conclude that the women describe the, the uh, conduct the women described did occur, this office could not pursue criminal charges. You know, they are relying on vague statutes and they're saying in other cases, well, you know, it, are the women believable? Yeah. One of the women accusers is a state trooper assigned to this guy. Are you are going to question her credibility? Um, there's another situation where um, Cuomo is alleged to have um, put his hand under a woman's shirt to, to, I guess, grope her breasts. And the authorities are saying, well, we don't know if we can believe her either. Hmm. Um, since when is there? I, th I thought victims were to be believed in these yeah. situations. That believe used to women. be the mantra. That yes. used to be the mantra. We believe the victims. Yep. So you got all these women coming forward and all of these um, pr prosecutors, you know, state and local prosecutors are going through like these, you know, legal gymnastics to try to find a way not to prosecute Cuomo. So um, I, I think that it's largely an embarrassment that there's been a selective decision to not find the women sufficiently credible to prosecute. Um, it's a sign of the times, John, I guess. Yeah. And Tim, finally, um, what about this? That you, there's still uh, there are still four current members, former members of the Proud Boys. There are still people jammed up with the whole. We're coming up on the one year anniversary of January sixth, and the the judge seemingly um, refuses to throw out the indictment that they were somehow uh, coordinating efforts around what happened at the Capitol last uh, January sixth. Yeah, John, it's amazing. I believe, um, I think the number is something like 700 people have been identified and charged yep. for participating in the um, January 6th events at the uh, U.S. Capitol. Um, the defendants in question have been held without bail and are arguing in part that hey, we were exercising our rights to free speech. And the judge basically says, no, at one point, free speech doesn't become free speech. And you're participating in this um, interfere with the um, process, a congressional process, um, keeping these guys in uh, prison, refusing to dismiss the charges against them, uh, rejecting every defense that's being put forth um, by defense counsel. Um, and it, the judge he's you know a, an extra prosecutor um it it doesn't seem to be a fair-handed administration of uh, or considering the arguments of these defendants the judge might not like what they did but he seems to be really going out of his way to reject any arguments that are put forth and these proud boys certainly are part of an organization which has been held up to a lot of public ridicule much of it justifiable, but that doesn't allow for these guys to be treated by the um, criminal justice system differently just because of their political bias. Um, that doesn't seem quite right. Um, and the, the way that these um, folks who have been arrested and held without bail um, seems like i don't want to say an overreach or an overreaction but it this seems like something that you'd see occurring in east germany or the yeah. soviet union the way they're keeping these people locked up mm. um unable to communicate with the outside world um it this seems disproportionate but the message, just like they could be messaging about people who are um, acting on up airline. on airlines, yep. uh, the messaging on this um, January 6th event is we are going to crush everyone who is involved in this, prosecute you, hold you without bail, make your life miserable so that no one will ever consider doing any such thing again. Um, to a point, I guess that's good messaging for the federal government to get out there. But these um, 
tactics that are being used against these defendants um, seem like just an over-the-top... Heavy-handed. Heavy-handed punishment before these guys have been convicted of anything. That's right. Folks, he is our legal expert, Attorney Tim Dodd. Tim, great job as always. Happy New Year. We have a lot of big legal stories that we're going to follow in the new year. Have a happy and safe new year. Thanks, John. The same to you and all your listeners. Take care. Brothers Disposal. Call Brothers Disposal today. Get a purple dumpster for your driveway. How do you know it's Brothers Disposal? Because it's a purple dumpster. Look for them on Facebook and give them a call for an estimate. 401 688 Get a dumpster in your driveway. Maybe you're cleaning out your basement, your garage, unwanted belongings. Maybe you just have some things in boxes that you've never taken out. Clean it out with Brothers Disposal. They're also now offering weekly trash collection services. Call Brother Roland today at Brothers Disposal, 401 401- 688-0517. Whether it's a small household construction project or you just need a dumpster to get rid of some unwanted belongings, call Brothers Disposal today. Come on, brother. Call Brothers Disposal, 401-688-0517. Look for them on Facebook, Brothers Disposal. Get a dumpster in your driveway, 401-688-0517. Folks, you're listening to The John DePietro Show weekdays on AM 1380, 99.9 FM, there's an intriguing new book about the king, Elvis Presley. And joining us right now is the author. It's Sally Hodel. Sally, first of all, very impressed by the book. If you could just start off uh, the title, Destined to Die Young, how is it that you came about with that title? Absolutely. Thanks, first of all, for having me on. I'm excited to talk with you today. Uh, The title was you know poetic in nature i think there's been so much sensationalized stuff put out there about elvis i just wanted it to be genuine and sincere and informative too and and what i love about the cover because you've seen it is that you know his name doesn't have to be there at all right and you know it's an elvis book just by that image and that profile alone you um i like how you decided and talked about um putting it out around christmas time because I mean, like many people, I have the Christmas, the uh, Elvis Christmas album. I've actually visited Graceland between Christmas and New Year's, so I'm familiar with just how beautiful it was. Um, what what was it about? Uh, was Christmas special to Elvis? Oh, absolutely. Elvis loved Christmas. I think part of that came from the fact that he grew up so poor and uh, went many Christmases without. So once he was able to pull his family out of poverty and provide for everyone, I think Christmas just became, you know, that much more important and special to him because family really was his top priority. I like how you go out of your way to clear up what you believe are a lot of misconceptions about Elvis. And let's start off with a big one that a lot of people believe that it was just his lifestyle that led to his early death. And and you write extensively that 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 was not the case. Absolutely. And, you know, back to the title of Destined to Die Young, I believe that Elvis was destined to have a short life. And his story has long been told as one of self-destruction in the pop culture world, you know, for sure. And it really was a struggle to survive. And by the time he passes in 1977, he's has disease or disorder in nine of the 11 systems of the body. And again, always written off as kind of the end result of lifestyle and the prescription medication problem. But my research shows there's evidence that at least five of those were present prior to fame, most likely since birth, genetic in nature. Um, So again, the destined part is that I explore his family tree and his maternal grandparents were first cousins. It creates a lot of health issues for his mother and her siblings, many dying in their 40s. And then Elvis dies in his 40s as well, similar issues, and it stops being a coincidence. Folks, again, we're speaking with the author of the new book, Elvis, Destined to Die Young. It's a tremendous read. The author is Sally Hodel. And Sally, again, I want to go back to the fact that you point out that he is, um, you know, kind of depicted as uh, the he's kind of put in the same category of like a, a, a Jimi Hendrix or a Jim Morrison or a Janis Joplin. He was not on a path of self-destruction. 
The prescription medication became a problem because a lot of it does have tolerance issues. It has addiction issues, even the things he's taking for the ailments that he knew he had. Uh, but, you know, it initially, the question is, why does he turn to that medication in the first place? And he initially took it to hide and deal with a lot of the problems that made it difficult to be Elvis Presley. And it starts out with something that we think is rather simple, like insomnia, but he had lifelong insomnia. He takes medication for that. And it works. He has a serious colon problem, which causes incredible pain. He has a serious immune system issue, which was probably very little was understood about that in the seven days. And it really does create a lot of health issues for him. So he takes medication to not only treat these things, but also hide them because he didn't want to appear weak as a male in the 1970s. You know, and it worked. They've been buried for over 40 years. And all that most people know is that he had a problem with the prescription medication. So was he was the king was Elvis? Um kind of a depressed Howard Hughes type figure. You write that he was not this depressed recluse that a lot of people depict him as. Yeah, I don't see him that way. And, you know, many times throughout his life, he's on record, even in the last couple of years when things were difficult, as saying, I love being Elvis Presley. I wouldn't want to be anyone besides Elvis Presley. He prided himself on the fact that he pulled his family out of poverty and was able to keep them there. I do think depression... You know, he dealt with that from time to time, as we all do, with life's ups and downs. And the kind of fame he had to live with was very difficult. Uh, but I think a lot of that uh, assumed depression or staying in his room, especially during that last year, more than he would have normally and being at Graceland more often, uh, was really the end result of not feeling well, not being able to do the things he wanted to do. You know, his performances changed a lot. He used to be a very active karate move kind of thing on stage. And, and it really... You know, he started to stand still, and, and a lot of that is because of the pain and the issues he was dealing with. So, yeah, I think that that was depressing in a way, right, to not be able to live and perform the way you want to. And that's a different kind of depression than the Howard Hughes and, you know, mental illness kind of thing that he's kind of been painted with over the years. What did you think of the quote how after the Beatles met Elvis, they they then appreciated and felt, you know, and they had said, at least we have each other, and there were four of them, where Elvis, he was just— he was alone. What do, what, do you, what do you make of that quote and observation by the Beatles? Yeah, and you know, Elvis's fame, I always say it, his story is not one of self-destruction. It's a story of survival, and first through that poverty, but then second through that extreme fame that no one had experienced before. And then, like you said, he was alone on that. And that's part of why he creates that bubble of people around him so he can have some kind of normalcy in this very alternate universe, you know, that he's living in. So I think it's awesome that the Beatles were able to recognize that. And, uh, you know, I know, I think they had a mutual respect between the between Elvis and the Beatles, both huge acts, right, of the 50s and 60s. And I'm so glad they were able to meet. And I, I think they had a, a mutual respect. Folks, again, we're speaking with Sally Hodell. The book is Elvis, Destined to Die Young. Sally, uh, before I ask you a little bit more about the book, I am curious, how has it been received? And are there some things about it that, that were important to you that really resonate with people? It's been very well received, and I'm, I'm happy for that because Elvis deserves this, right? Like Elvis is not just a rock and roll star. He is a historical figure. He culturally shifted the universe in a very, very big way. And if you look at the you know, the top ten songs on, on the charts in 1956 and before Hound Dog hits and Don't Be Cruel, it's How Much Is That Doggy in the Window? And it's Perry Cuomo and, you know— uh, Tony Bennett. So you can, when you think about that, you can understand how shocking Elvis was. And when we look at him through that narrow lens of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, it really isn't enough. And and one of my goals with this book certainly was to humanize Elvis, because I do think all these years later, especially with the younger generations, he's this recognizable image. Everybody knows him, you know, by image and first name alone, but they don't know enough about him, and they don't know enough about his music, and they don't know how he culturally shifted literally the world so i think by exploring this layer of humanity humanizing him explaining his demise um his fall from grace so to speak i think that only helps his legacy are you you are absolutely convinced that he he did die he did pass away i am absolutely convinced of that yes and again you know uh it's it's one of those things that is just sort of a disservice to his legacy overall you know the constant elvis sightings right how did that that not to get into it too much, but I think yeah. didn't that initially just start? I thought there was a woman in in Michigan that claimed she used to see him in a grocery store, and it it just started from that, and then it just took off from that. That's yeah, what I, I think, remember. I think 
I think it was a Burger King actually in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it made national news, right? And and then it kind of started to happen repeatedly over time. Um, I think part of that is due to the impersonation that Elvis has. You know, what other artist has the level of impersonation that Elvis has right. with all the there's I think forty, fifty thousand Elvis tribute artists in the world. Wow. Like, that's an astronomical number. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's a that's probably an aspect of it too, right? I like that you also uh, point out in the book that you, you you feel in your research, you're of the opinion he did not die from a drug overdose. No, I believe that would have been a slow coma-like death, and his death was very quick. It was a heart-related episode. Uh, I explained the book what I believe brought on that um, heart episode, that cardiac arrhythmia. And again, when you look at his mother dying at 46, an uncle at 46, an uncle at 49, another uncle at 58, all liver, heart, you know, related issues. And you see these liver and heart related issues play out in Elvis, it stops being a coincidence. And we have to remember that all those other relatives, they didn't live the rock and roll lifestyle that Elvis did. Right. Yet they all passed at very similar ages. Hmm, 42. Folks, again, the book, Elvis, Destined to Die Young, the author, Sally Hodel. Sally, congratulations on the book. Uh, it's well thought out. It's very well written. I can tell that it's not a typical author almost assigned. This was is, the way I perceive it, a great passion of yours, and you seem determined to set the record straight on certain things about Elvis. Absolutely. And thank you for all that. It, it was a passion project for me. I am a, a journalist and a writer, but a lifelong Elvis fan. And I always say I'm lucky my childhood had a soundtrack because my dad played records. And, you know, I've been an Elvis fan for a long time. Pieced this together and it just made sense. I had to share it. If you're ever in an accident, pick up the phone and call West Fountain Auto Body today. 401-272-3340. Were you in an auto accident? Someone damaged your vehicle? Folks, it can happen whether it's people not paying attention, a drunk driver, people texting and driving. If you're ever in an accident, pick up the phone, call West Fountain Auto Body, 401-272-3340. They're located 400 West Fountain Street in Providence. Remember, with West Fountain Auto Body, they're going to work for you, not the insurance company. Call them today. If you were in an accident, drunk driver, someone texting and driving, minor fender banner, even a nearly totaled vehicle, Call West Fountain Auto Body today, 401-272-3340. They'll handle everything for you, the original, the best. And if you're in an accident and a tow truck pulls up, tell them, bring that car over to West Fountain Auto Body, 401-272-3340, 401-272-3340, West Fountain Auto Body, located 400 West Fountain Street in Providence. They'll work for you, not the insurance company. If you're in an accident, call West Fountain today. Get it repaired. 401-272-3340. You're listening to The John DePietro Show on AM 1380, 99.9 FM. Folks, remember, you can always listen online at our website, dipietro.com. Check out the website, dipietro.com. We have original, unique exclusive stories videos content all our links to social media facebook twitter instagram youtube it's all right there and that's also the best way to reach me log on at the website depetro.com depetro.com to check out our website depetro.com depetro.com which is sponsored by and brought to you by the Senadale revival comfort food and cocktails located 2025 smith street in north providence Shane and his crew, what a wonderful job they've done. Winner of several Rhode Island Best of Awards, Best of Rhode Island Awards. The Senadale Revival. Delicious food, cocktails, a lot of fun. Stop it and see them. 2025 Smith Street in North Providence.